All right, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm not sure which version I'm reading, so we'll see. So Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of his vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded (laughs) Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Betelgezar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days he was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who were eating king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine and, and their drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of that time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Good morning, good morning. So this morning we are continuing. We're going through the book of Daniel. Like as I said last week, this is one of my favorite books to read through, to teach through. Um, I think it just has so many different aspects that are components of of this one book. We get a narrative, we get a good story, we get um, connection back with some pretty pivotal passages. Uh, which we'll go into a couple of those today. There's uh, prophetic literature in there. Uh, and 
most of this book, Daniel, is living out the life of a covenant person before foreigners. And so we get to see what it means for people to live in exile. What does it mean to live in a place where you're the minority? You're not at your, you know, you're not at home. You don't have the home field advantage. What does that look like? We get to see what that looks like here in Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, and you should have your Bibles, if you need a Bible, we can get you a Bible. Daniel chapter 1. We're actually going to go through the whole chapter today, this morning. We are going to be walking through the chapter. So um, don't, don't feel like it's a daunting thing. We're doing a whole chapter. Uh, we're going to be walking through together. So I did want to start at the beginning because it is a very good place to start. So even though we read a couple of these verses and went into it a little bit last week, we're going to look at a couple things in the same place this week. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. We're going to pause there for a second. Let's point out a few different things here. So last week we talked a bit about the siege. We're not going to go a ton into there, but um, yeah, we talked about the idea of being delivered into his hand. That's kind of a foreign idea if you're reading through the rest of the Old Testament. That's supposed to be on the benefit of Israel that the Lord is delivering foreigners into their hands when they go against them in battle. But in this case, the Lord gave the king of Judah into the hand of a foreigner. And notice how it starts out with not taking the people out. It's the very next thing it says. That he took some of the vessels of the house of God. <clears throat> so what are these vessels? What are they talking about? It's not vehicles, not like that kind of vessel. They didn't take like ships back. Well, I guess one of them is the ark, so it's kind of, I could see where you'd see that. Uh, the vessels of the house of God. Why is this a big deal? Why is this the first thing mentioned after the uh, information we get that they were delivered into his hand? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31. We get a little insight here into what those vessels are. Now the vessels, all they had to say was the vessels of the temple, and everybody knew what they were and knew what we're talking about. So we need to kind of be informed a little bit here. <clears throat> Look at verse 1. There's a reason why we're reading this forward part as well. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bazael, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, 
son of Ahisamash of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all uh, able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, these are the vessels. <clears throat> the tent of meeting, which that was the tent, that was the actual tabernacle itself at that point. See, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, that's the ark of the covenant, and the mercy seat that's on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, so the chairs, the tables, the throw rug, if there was one, all the furnishings of the tent, the temple and its, or I'm sorry, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, incense, and all uh, the altar of the burnt offering, and all the utensils, and all the basins in its stand, and the finely worked garments, so even including the garments that the priests would wear, the holy garments for Aaron and the priests, uh, Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for the service as priests, and the anointing oil. And the fragrance, uh, the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So a couple things to point out here. Uh, it's pretty much all the furnishings and all these things. So all these things were set up as holy. These were set apart. They could only be used in the temple. They were only for the worship of the Lord. They, were, they included garments for the priests. They included just where they would sit. They included the tables, the utensils. So in any kind of knives or anything else they needed to use for some of these things, included all of it. Uh, the lampstand, it also included the ark itself and what sat on top of the ark. Notice how it mentions it in two different parts. You have the ark, right? the ark of the testimony, then you have the mercy seat. The mercy seat was actually the throne for Yahweh. That's why it's called a seat. He would sit there. His glory rested there on that seat. That was his earthly throne right there in the temple. So he mentions this. All of these vessels were taken out of the temple. Everything that had been commanded for them to use for worship was now gone. Taken away. And where did they put it? They put it in the treasury, but it says to the treasury of their God the Chaldean God. The, the purpose of this was not calculate the amount of gold, figure out how much we got, and we're just taking treasure. It's, the idea was not we're just taking treasures. I mean, that was obviously a part of it. They're only going to take precious things back. But the idea was not, now we've got this in our bank account. The idea was they took it and they put it in the treasury to their God, we sort of talked about this last week. This was to show that Yahweh himself had been conquered. His utensils, his things for worship are now in the treasury of another God. It was a way for them to show Yahweh is now subservient to the gods of the Chaldeans. Right? This was to embarrass Yahweh. And by doing so, Embarrass the people. Make the people feel as though their God is now not worthy of worship. Right? It was a way for them to conquer the local religion of the people. And so this is, this is kind of a big deal. And that's why God mentions it right, right there in the, in the opening verses of Daniel. 
So you'll notice here that he took it and they, they put it in the treasury to their God. And this was sort of to say, it's done. We've, we've finished the conquest. There's no point anymore. It's done. So back to Daniel. Looking here in Daniel, we, ha- we see that that's not really the end. It would be the end for the Babylonians to say, okay, now we're done. We won. It's finished. But for us, it's just the beginning of our discussion here. You could ask, if all those things are gone, the Ark of the Covenant is gone, what is now left in the temple? Because they, they brought the people out in three different Measure. So what are they doing in the temple? Ezekiel mentions that worship is still going on in the temple. Things are still happening. Right? So they were still using um, that facility and those things. But just as, as uh, Ezekiel points out, they weren't really exclusively worshiping Yahweh at that time. They actually were involved in worshiping other gods. We're not going to spend a ton of time there. It's worth spending time, but we, we're, we're going to get through this chapter here. Uh, but in Ezekiel chapter 11, <clears throat> it's a very interesting story where it talks about the glory of God. So when Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory of God came and filled the temple. Full of smoke, full of, uh, so with such intensity, full of glory, brightness, that nobody could go in. All right, so God showed up. Well, there's a story in Ezekiel that as the people are worshiping other gods, as it is being used improperly, the Shekinah, the glory, actually leaves. Leaves the temple. And the saddest part is nobody notices. It's also interesting because it says that it went to the nearby high mountain, that's the Mount of Olives, and ascended. It was gone. So in a sense, the glory itself the glory, the presence of God during this time period leaves as well. The people leave, and the glory of God leaves. And it does not return. We don't have a story where the glory arrives again. They now wait. And when they go and perform worship, so when you go to the New Testament and they're going in and they say, oh, it's the, it's the feast of Passover and and the priests are going in and doing their work, and some of the things have been replaced, but they would go in, and instead of pouring or sprinkling blood on the, the mercy seat, there was no mercy seat. They just put it on the ground. We don't have that. They were waiting. So this is actually a pretty pivotal moment for this to take place uh, for the people, because there's more than just that. There's also, in a, in a sense... <clears throat> the exile or departing of the glory of God from there. So then when they wait, when they say they're expectingly waiting for the Messiah, there's more built up in that than just we're waiting for a political leader. Those who also connected the idea that the Messiah was going to come and restore all things, that was also something that was tied up in that, that they're going to have a restored, full worship. And they actually did. They just didn't recognize it. Let's continue. Let's look at Starting in verse 3. It says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal, uh, the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed in knowledge, uh, understanding, learning, 
competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Let's, let's look at that for a moment before we go on. The king commands his chief eunuch to go and select youths. Uh, young men, it only mentions men in the rest of the passage. Uh, were young women taken to? Probably. They're just not mentioned here because Daniel's experience was, was what he's writing here. But they're taking these from royalty and from the nobility. We talked a little bit about this last week. This was the Babylonians' way of further conquering the people to try to stop any kind of rebellion that might happen later. So if you take the nobility, you take the, the leaders, and if you bring them in, and all of a sudden they're, they now sit with the king, the king's officials and the king's house, or they're now, they now have these, these uh, properties, lands, palaces somewhere in Babylon. It's seen as now we're, now we're a part of the empire, and it kind of would discourage any kind of rebellion later on. So we know a couple things about Daniel and his friends, as we'll get introduced to them in just a second, that they were part of this class. They were, uh, they were of the tribe of Judah. We don't know specifically if they were of the royal family. They may have been. At the very least, they were part of the nobility. So they most likely already had a measure of learning. They probably already were educated, right? So they had to be good-looking as well. I don't know what their criteria was, but they had to fit that criteria, and they were taken away. I want to stop and talk about this position, too. Ashpenaz is the chief eunuch. What's a eunuch? So a eunuch, um, the eunuch has a couple different connotations. Uh, a eunuch is generally just a servant that works, uh, or their area of responsibility is very close or very, uh, in a very intimate part of the royal family or an official's family or, or something to that respect. So as we went through with, with Esther, they had eunuchs who were watching over the women that were for the king. Right? One reason why they would use eunuchs is they're uh, not as likely to get into relational mischief with the royal family or, in the case of the eunuchs where we looked in Esther, with the protected women, the, the harem, that's, it literally means the band. You, they are separated out. The band women, nobody can, can touch them or, or, or have them at any, in any way. They are off limits. And so the eunuch, uh, a eunuch oftentimes was castrated to keep them from Relational mischief. Um, we don't know if all eunuchs were, as, as it's recorded here, because eunuch also just then became a, a higher official in some of these positions, and they weren't always castrated. Um, Jesus talks about three different kinds of eunuch in Matthew 19. We won't go into that, because it's not really the focus of this. But one thing that, that happened was, was someone who was a eunuch, they were uh, kind of looked down upon. And the idea was, and the, the thought was, they had been... Mutilated. That's actually the term that they would use. They had, they had been mutilated, and so they were kind of looked down upon. Here's the interesting thing. The nations around Israel, the nations around 
than when they looked at the Jews. They knew that they had the practice of circumcision. They were regarded as the mutilated. Not in the same way, but in a similar way. Didn't know we were going to talk about this this morning, did you? But that was the thought. They, they would look at them and say, like, oh, they're, they're sort of lesser because they, they practice this type of mutilation. <clears throat> and so when you, when you start to see the eunuch and how he interacts with Israel, I don't know if that was one way that the eunuch, the chief eunuch, and maybe the other eunuchs, sort of, not an affinity, but they kind of understood how they were looked down upon in, in some way. It could have been one factor. It's something to kind of think about. They were both regarded in that kind of category. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 5. The king assigned to them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Part of this was to sort of court the allegiance of these noble sons and daughters, right? So that they would say, hey, I got it pretty good here. I have a really nice place to stay. I get great food. It's the same food the king eats. Should be pretty good, right? It says they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they're going to be brought before the king. So sometimes we think about this as all kind of happening over a weekend kind of thing, but this, this time of preparation, three years long. They essentially were brought to Babylon, they were put in a place to learn, and they were actually educated three years before they could be brought before. And you know what? That makes sense. Why should they just bring people, foreigners from some other place, just bring them in and put them in places and positions within uh, some of these official places? No, they need to learn. They need to learn our ways. They need to learn our language at the very least. Three years. It's sort of like getting a bachelor's degree in something you don't want to study. Which might be your experience, I don't know. But they were there for three years. Um, if we think about that, them all of a sudden being put in this place, how lonely would you feel? Even if you were with a larger group of your own people. Perhaps they were mixed in with other, with other people from other, other nations who were in the same Situation, but how would that feel being in that place, being alone, forced to learn these things? I guarantee you there were a lot of people who were in that place that even though they may have felt some loneliness, they kind of just jumped in. Yeah, look, we got, it, we got it pretty good. Nice place to stay. People that treat us really well, treat us with respect. Slowly over time, those people just are added to the fold. They just become part of that group. Look at verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the tribe of Judah. The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. This was part of their indoctrination. They would now receive new names. Partly to help them disassociate with their former life. Daniel is called Belteshazzar. He's actually not called Belteshazzar very often in the book of Daniel. It's one of the things you get to do when you write. The book that talks about you is you get to use your own name, I suppose. 
Uh, Hananiah is called Shadrach. Mishael is Meshach. Azariah is called Abednego. Uh, to kind of go through that list, names, names mean something, right? This has been talked about a few different times. Char talked about this a lot in the last series, too. Names mean something. And for someone to be unnamed is a big deal. For someone to receive a new name is also a big deal. We actually see that a lot in the New Testament. Someone receives a new name, like Saul to Paul, um, Simon to Peter. Right? So we see that happening. Names mean something. Well, for Hananiah, Hananiah's name means God has favored. Now, at that moment, it probably didn't feel like they were very favored, being taken away from their own land. Instead, he was given a name that means royal or a great scribe. Maybe that was descriptive of who he was. Maybe that was something he was, he was really good at, one of the reasons he was chosen. Mishael becomes Meshach. Sounds similar. means something very different. Number, uh, the, so for this, this one here, who, the name means uh, who is like our God. It's very close to the, to the name Michael, who is like God. Who is what God is, is the proper, uh, the proper translation for Mishael. That's changed to Meshach, which means guest of a king. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. Azariah is a pretty popular name among the priests, actually, of the uh, sons of Zadok. Azariah's name is changed to Abednego. So Yahweh has helped is what his name means. And now he is called servant of Nebo, one of their local gods. Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's Babylonian name, means Bel protects his life. Daniel means God is my judge. And throughout this book, Daniel is called Daniel most of the time. And what's interesting is, is he really lives as though God really is his judge. It really doesn't matter what the people around him tell him, say to him. In a respectful way, he finds a way to be responsible to God for his actions. That's how he lives. If you look at verse, uh, if we continue on, verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Later on, it includes all four of the young men mentioned. And so even though Daniel says he resolved, it's probably all four of them said, yeah, we're all going to resolve to not do this. And a lot of people will read through this, and because the focus in the next passage is very much the food, the idea is, is that it's, it's specifically you know, like a kosher thing. Like, we're not going to eat that food. We're not going to do that thing. That's a part of it. You know, if we had, if we had the time, if we had the, the interest to do that, we could go through some of the kosher laws. They're in Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, and that may have played a part, although it's not mentioned. That part's not mentioned. It says, I'm not going to defile myself with the king's food. And probably a bigger point was the food that was given to the king was most likely food that had first been offered to their gods. This is a very, very common practice. In fact, even today, if you... Um, Go to some uh, different Asian restaurants. Maybe they are, uh, uh, if they're Buddhist, it's a common practice to offer the food to gods. You might even see the little shrines in there. You see the little 
little gods they put up there, and mo- or little statues in there, and that, that's what they're doing. They're offering these things beforehand. And if uh, I went to one restaurant down south, and, and there was a, there was, it was attached to a Buddhist temple, and so you could actually just take your food and walk in and go and offer it yourself and then go eat. So it was, it was an interesting thing. So this isn't necessarily a practice that's completely gone. Like we, we, see, we actually see it, we just don't notice it, and we don't care, honestly, for the most part. But Daniel said that he had resolved in his heart, right? He had purposed in his heart that he's not going to defile himself. <clears throat> this practice of offering, to idols, uh, offering food to idols was condemned by Yahweh. Uh, Exodus chapter 34 talks about that. And what it is is essentially you being invited to this form of worship. That's how it's built up in the law. That's how it's explained. Is that if you are invited to take part in this worship, don't do it. And it goes through a list and then says, don't eat the food offered to the idols. Because you are, in a sense, saying that that worship, that practice, what they're a part of is okay. You're affirming. That's good. It's a good thing. I only point that out because there's, I've, I've read, if you do a little search on, on Daniel and Daniel's eating, or some people call it a, the Daniel diet or a Daniel fast, um, a lot of it has to do, it's a focus of the food. Well, the meat wasn't good and the wine wasn't good, and so he instead did this other thing. This idea and the concept of defiling yourself, it, it, was, a, it was more of a religious context. It was more of, I'm not going to do this thing because it's part of the practice. If we, look, uh, if we look further on, verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths that are of your own age? So here's the assumption. We're going to give you choice food, so obviously it's better and we don't want you looking worse because then it's my head on the line. Daniel talks to them and says, hey, let's do a test. Ten days. Let's try it for ten days. Let's try it my way. And it says, it's really specific in here. It says that they had favor with the eunuchs. They had compassion with the eunuchs. They looked at them and there's okay, well, Okay, we'll try it. And it was really the Lord who was behind it. And it's kind of similar to some of the things that we see like with the midwives in Egypt where the midwives came and then they sort of, they kind of lied to the king because they say these Hebrew women are really strong. Like we can't kill the baby boys because they already have had them. It's, it's garnishing this favor with people. Now it doesn't mean that the eunuch all of a sudden worshipped Yahweh, they could see that there was something different about these guys, and God put that in their hearts. God even has sway over unbelievers and how they, how they act and, and what they do. And so they had favor with them to the point where they said, okay, we'll do a test, 10 days. 10 days, Daniel suggests, we'll do uh, water and vegetables. How about that? Instead of meat. 
and wine. They say, okay. Now, if you, if you do happen to go on and do a search of that, say it's a Daniel fast, right? It's only eating vegetables and only water. I don't know if that's really what was taking place. If it was only the vegetables, because it doesn't necessarily exclude, you know, it doesn't say in here that, oh, he didn't eat all these other things. It's in comparison with the wine and the meat, water and vegetables, most likely still had bread, something else, and we kind of do that too. You know, we don't necessarily include the staple food there, so that may have been a part of it. And I only say that because, man, people try to sell you a bunch of different books on this thing, and it means this thing. It's like, you know what? I don't know if that's exactly what was in play here, but it's specifically vegetables and water that's mentioned in comparison to the meat and the wine from the king, which probably also include legumes and other grains and other things. So it's not as though they're sitting in the back starving. That's all I'm trying to say, right? That's most likely not what's taking place. After the 10 days, hey, these guys are, they're looking pretty good. Let's be honest, if you're sitting around and most of what you're eating is meat and wine and you know, I'm not saying anything against any particular restaurant in Babylon, but I would guess that probably food handling standards are not as high as we have it today. Man, if all you're eating is like really rich foods, primarily of meat and other choice things like that, I mean, how prone would you be to different illnesses, you know, foodborne illnesses, things like that? And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like, but definitely the diet that Daniel prescribed for himself and his friends. It's definitely a lot cleaner way to eat, especially at that time. So at the end, hey, they look much better. And so the eunuch, the head eunuch actually says that this is good enough to actually say, no, we're going to actually change everyone's diet and do this. The reason why it's say it's not a fast is that they didn't get presented to the king for until when? It's three years. It's going to be a little difficult to exist and to live and to look so healthy on a fast for three years, right? So it's most likely not what a lot of people put forward today. But look at that, verse 16. So the steward took away their food and the wine, and so that you can guess that Daniel and his friends made a few enemies that day and gave them vegetables. But it was enough of a contrast and the Lord gave enough favor for this eunuch to actually stand up for him and say, yeah, this, this is actually better. And if that's the case, that's all. We've talked a lot about providence. That's definitely providence in the background. Allowing Daniel and his friends this opportunity to not defile themselves while they're in their training. Verse 17 Verse 17 is, as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, period. That sounds weird. Therefore, they stood there. No, the, the idea was they were invited into the court. 
they can now stand before the king. They actually have a position and a place to stand in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. That's pretty amazing. After your training and you finally go and you're before the king, to be so impressive in what you're able to display, they're given a position right away. It's pretty outstanding, actually. A couple things. It says here that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Remember when we read in Exodus 31? The craftsmen were given this skill by the Lord. Skill in design. Skill to make something. Well, this is a similar thing. God gave them skill in literature. As we go through the New Testament, we see some lists for spiritual gifts. You'll notice that the lists are not the same in all the different places that it's discussed. And sometimes we pigeonhole God. God can only do certain things. He can only gift in certain ways. What we actually see is God gifts in a lot of different ways. Could God give you, give you special, specific skill in literature and knowledge? Seems like it, because he did here, to the point of impressing these foreigners. It says that no one was found like them. So imagine you take these youths from Judah, you put them into your training program, and they come out better than all of your own people that were homegrown folks went through the program. That is pretty outstanding, and that's not an accident. That's not because they were so smart. I mean, they were smart, but it says here very specifically that the Lord gave them those things, gave them understanding in these different areas. Sometimes we have the temptation to say, well, God gives spiritual gifts, gives gifts and understanding in these certain ways, but not in others. I mean, can we, can we just agree that anything good that comes from us really comes from the Lord? Or that your skill in, 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 in music or, or literature or athletic ability? I mean, Samson got supernatural strength. That's a pretty good one. I haven't really seen that again, but that was pretty cool. Like, the Lord can do what he wants, and he can gift how he wants, when he wants. So I think about that in the context of the church, and sometimes we, we're not looking for what the Lord might actually be doing in people's lives, because if it doesn't fit our list, we're a little bit more uncomfortable to ascribe it to the Lord. However, there's nothing here that keeps Daniel from writing that, yeah, the Lord gave us these things. Notice he also says the verses, in verse 17 that Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. I think this is most likely pointing to these different incidents that we're going to see in chapter 2 and chapter 4, because as we get to the end of this chapter here, verse 20, And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Verse 21, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This sounds like a summary of Daniel's career. Right, so this 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 uh, ability that Daniel has it might be going back to these incidents that we're going to have recorded more specifically later on. But what a statement, because King Cyrus is not from Babylon. King Cyrus is of Persia, and so you have not only men who are seen to be ten times greater than those who had trained them and those around them, 
But it's a career that goes beyond this king and extends on into another empire. This also pretty much shows us that this was written by Daniel and he carried this because otherwise who would be able to write this other than someone who was there from the beginning to the end. Pretty amazing. So you can ask a question of, of these men. How, how did they do this? Let's be honest. In the position that they were placed in, being taken to a foreign land, no longer with their families, they didn't have any Levites to inquire you know, or to, to ask questions of, or they didn't have all of these things. How did they do this? How did they live this life to this level? Because it's not really stated here towards the end here, but that resolute nature that these young men had extended all the way through their lifetimes. We'll see that throughout the rest of the book. How did they live like that? A few weeks ago, uh, Michelle read a, a, a psalm that was descriptive of how people felt being taken away. Psalm 137. And it's a very vengeful psalm. Lord, bring justice on the heads of the Babylonians. Right? Bring curses on them. Destroy them. God eventually did. But how do you have this situation where you're taken away from your home, your house of worship is emptied of its vessels. You can't even think, well, at least life is still going on back home because you don't know, and it's probably not. So how do you continue to live with any kind of hope? How? How do you do this? We can say Daniel and his friends did, but how? Look at, with me, Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is in the law. This is something that Daniel and his friends would have had some sort of access to. None of, see, none of this surprised Yahweh. None of this surprised the Lord. You can say, oh my goodness, I can't believe you all failed to the point where I'm actually going to have to do what I said I was going to do if you failed. Because he knew that they would. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 25. And we're going we're to read the whole thing just because it gives a little bit more context. When your father, I'm sorry, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, remember this, is, this was given to them before they even entered the land. This is hundreds of years earlier. When you have grown, and I'm sorry, and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations. 
where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone and work of, uh, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart, with all of your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will rejoice in the Lord for, I'm sorry, Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Even if all these calamities come upon you, and you're taken away, and you're dragged away, and you're scattered among the nations. If you search for me, what does he say? You'll find me. Which, think about that. You're scattered to all the nations. You could think, where in the world could they find Yahweh? But guess what? He's there. He's already there. He's not like the gods of wood and stone. He's not stuck He's not created by humans. He actually is already there. And so when you are in these foreign lands and you look for him, it says, with all of your heart and soul, you search for me, you'll find me. The prophet Ezekiel is near a river in Babylon. He's among these exiles. And what does he see? He sees a vision of the Lord there, away from Israel, Away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, Yahweh is still there. What is their hope? Yahweh is still their hope. They knew this. If they listened to the word of the Lord, they knew it. They knew that the Lord would be there. He would not forget them. I don't have it up for the screen, but Psalm 119, just listen to these words. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding, uh, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I don't know if this is the psalm that was in Daniel and his friend's mind, but it is definitely what they lived out. They kept those precepts, even though they were far away from being the majority. Far away from being at home. They still followed that. So the question then becomes, how does this impact us? How, how do we take what we learned from Daniel? How do we apply this? Can we live this way? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter is one of my favorite New Testament letters to go through. I've taught through the, the whole letter probably three different times. Look at 
Look at these verses. Verse 11. Beloved, this is obviously Peter writing, 1 Peter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's from the perspective of Peter that he writes actually this whole letter from this perspective that the people of God are exiles. We are waiting for the kingdom to be established. We're waiting for the king to return to sit on his throne. And so we bring the kingdom with us. Wherever you go, you will live this way. You will live as sojourners and exiles, bringing that testimony with you. And we know that's the perspective because the very first couple of verses in First Peter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and they listed out Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. This was the perspective. We are exiles. We are waiting. All of us are. And so how do we live like this? If we look at the example of Daniel, we look to the promises. We look to the promises given. Everything in our culture around us will drive us away from it. And so we must be those who regard ourselves. We are exiles. We are waiting for the restoration. We're waiting to return. For us, it's waiting to return to a country we've never seen, never been a part of, or waiting to be brought back to a kingdom that we have never enjoyed to its full extent. And yet we live with the hope that this kingdom really does exist and really will arrive and we will really get to enjoy it. That it's a reality. It's a reality for us. Now I want to point something out here. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers... If we're doing these things, if we're living like the kingdom, are we evildoers? No. By quality, we would not be evildoers. It says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So they may call you evildoers, but then when they look at what you do and what you say, they say they're not evildoers. They will actually glorify God. But I want to talk about this last, on the day of visitation. Because it's sort of a two-sided a double-sided sort of idea. So a lot of commentaries, if you read this, this talking about, so when Jesus arrives, when, when the second coming happens, and there you go. <clears throat> That's what it's talking about. And yes, that, that definitely is an aspect of that. When Jesus shows up, they say, oh, yeah, you were, you were right. Jesus was coming, and the kingdom thing you were talking about is true. But part of this is also very specific to the people around us. So if we're actually living this life, this kingdom life with the people around us, when the Lord visits them, they will glorify God. This is also a personal visitation. That when they actually see this, when the offer of the kingdom is there, when the offer of the gospel is there, and they see and the Lord is visiting them, visiting them, the Holy Spirit comes and is drawing them. They'll look at our example. They'll look at how we live. They'll look at the good deeds that we do. They'll see that, wow, that actually is a good thing. This day of visitation is a lot more than just, yeah, at the very end, when Jesus shows up. 
This is your coworker. This is your neighbor. This is your family member. That when the Lord visits them, that they would recognize and glorify the Lord because of how you have lived in your exile. That's really good. It's not easy, right? So, so for us, we have enjoyed relative extended peace as Christians where we live. We have. We have benefited. We have been able to grow. That is not the case around the world, right? And we see that it's not always going to be the case even where we are. And some of us experience some measures of light persecution. And I always want to put that in perspective. You may feel it really deeply, but you're not getting dragged out of your house. So let's put it in perspective of the world, right? There's, it's still a measure, but it's not a full measure for us, at least not yet. Lord willing, we won't have to experience many of those things. But how do you live this way when there is the potential for persecution? You'll notice for Daniel, <laughs> if this doesn't work, we're dead. If this doesn't work out, it's lights out. Which then, you know, be with the Lord faster anyway, so they get what they want. Romans chapter 8. We could, we could stay in Peter, for Second Peter, and talk about some of these things, but Paul writes this in such a wonderful way. Verse 18 of chapter 8. For I consider, this is Paul writing, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. They're not even in the same level. They're not in the same category. We just leave it off. We're not even going to do it. Not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation also is waiting. Creation is not dumb. It knows its creator. Creation itself is longing for this time where there's going to be the restoration of all things. And the sons of God are revealed. And so, you know, you have this old lady that faithfully talks to her neighbors and is praying for people. And you know, they say, when the kingdom arrives, and all of a sudden, in the view of everybody, this old lady who everybody disregarded off the side is uplifted and given a position. And all of a sudden, I was, oh my goodness, she's part of the household of Yahweh. She is, she's a follower of Jesus who's now the king. Wow, look at that. I mean, it's, it's, it's the day when the sons and the daughters of the household of God are revealed. It's all out there. Everyone now knows, boom, on the, that day, all those who are low are going to be lifted up. And so, on the day, that's when the family of God is revealed. It says that all of creation longs for that. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Look at this next part. <clears throat> In hope that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Hope. That's what it is. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning until now, a change of, pow- uh, pow- uh, of childbirth until now. And now, um, I'm sorry, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. We also in line with this, we also should be eagerly awaiting this 
kingdom to arrive, for this reality to arrive. And it's very easy for us to set up shop. We're here. This is it. It's easy for us to be deceived, to think everything we see is all we're ever going to get. And forget our hope. The hope that there's more, there's far more. And not just for things that we have, but actually the redemption of our bodies, our, our resurrection. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Meaning if you already have it and you see it and it's here and it's there, you don't have to hope for it anymore. It's not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That last, we wait for it with patience. That's our life. Waiting with patience. It's coming. It's promised. Just like for Daniel. There's a promise that we will one day go back. Don't know when that is exactly. As we read through... Daniel, he has given that answer through the prophet Jeremiah and it's confirmed by an angel. We don't get a lot of that. We wait. We wait patiently. Even bearing up under persecution. So for us, there's, there's a couple different things for us to really take away. Take this little thing we'll put in our pocket. We are exiles. If we are followers of Jesus, if we're waiting for this kingdom that's coming, we're exiles. We're not there Yet. We don't live there yet. But as exiles, we live with those same principles. We bring the kingdom with us. The only way that Jewish culture survived in Babylon is because they practiced it in their homes. They encouraged each other. They kept it alive. They still followed the feasts. They still encouraged one another. This way God still sent prophets to them while they were there. They still had that. They lived that way. But they lived that way in patience, knowing that the Lord was faithful to bring about what he has promised. And that's how we live. How Paul writes it, even under persecution, we live that way. It's harder for us, when we still live in relative peace and prosperity, and we can hold these principles, it's hard for us to continue to think of ourselves as exiles. It really is. Maybe for some of us, we really have been enamored with the king's choice food and wine, and we actually think that the position we have is actually pretty nice, and we're pretty okay. I would challenge you to Think of that resolve. What resolve must I have in my heart in order to live as an exile here? How can we do that? It's through encouraging one another. It's through holding on to these promises. It's through having this hope and waiting and patience. It's not easy, but it's something that we have to remind ourselves. We have to remind each other. We're not from around here. And one day, all those promises will be fulfilled. Heavenly Father, God, we know what you've called us to. To live out your precepts, your purposes, to hold in our hearts your word, to live by your statutes while we are in exile. 
Lord, I pray that we would never look to our actions, our good works as the means of our salvation, but instead, Lord, we would look to see that this is our act as hopeful people waiting in patience with an allegiance to a country and a kingdom that will one day arrive to a king who really is alive and is alive forevermore, who then offers us a life that exists and goes on and on forever. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of that, but instead we would encourage each other to wait patiently with hope for all the promises that you've given us. So when life gets hard and doubts arrive and we have questions, Lord, I pray that we would bear these burdens together, that we would continue to walk expecting that you will show up and expecting that you are going to fulfill the promises that you've made to us. Lord, thank you for the example of Daniel. And Lord, I pray that we would live lives worthy of this gospel we've been given. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.